Rivian's stock price keeps dropping as it tries to sell more vehicles in an increasingly competitive EV marketplace. What happens when more legacy automakers get into the business? Rivian's long-term plan for success is just ahead on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, the next installment in WGLT's Welcome Home series. Many communities have their own recycling rules. The Ecology Action Center gets all kinds of questions about what can and can't be recycled, including plastics. Is it a bottle, tub, jug, or jar? Bottle, tub, jug, or jar, if it's not, it's not recyclable. Plus, some long-forgotten artwork fetches big bucks for the Bloomington Public Library. I walked past it for 15 years and didn't know, and there's people in Pennsylvania actually actively looking for it and can't find it. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Here My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. Folks that had never had a, a set of hearing aids were always concerned. All of a sudden, oh, you've got, well, yes, I, I wear them too. And, and it's really is helpful. And these things are really kind of nice. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. The electric automaker Rivian became a publicly traded company 18 months ago, and its stock price has been in freefall pretty much ever since. The pandemic, supply chain problems, the challenges of ramping up production from scratch, it's been a tough stretch for Bloomington Normal's second largest employer. But there have been some encouraging signs in the last few weeks, including some new information detailed on yesterday's quarterly earnings call with investors. WGLT's Ryan Denham was on that call as well, and he's now in studio to recap what he heard. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining us again. Good to be here, John. I heard you on that call yesterday. Can you give what, what, what you think is your big takeaway from yesterday's quarterly earnings call? Well, ever since Rivian went public back in, in fall of 2021, there's been, you know, a lot of attention on the company's stock price, which has been, you know, falling. Uh, kind of these short-term, day-to-day, week-to-week, the whims of the stock market thing. And what I heard yesterday was sort of a reminder to me that, that Rivian is playing a very long game. Longer than uh, what a stock market usually, uh, the stock market usually allows for. Uh, there was lots of talk yesterday about what Rivian is learning in normal as they make all these trucks, SUVs, and vans, and how they'll apply what they're learning to make vehicles in the future more efficiently. Uh, and they think that will help Rivian stay competitive as more legacy automakers like Ford and GM, as, as they are making more EVs too, um, Rivian is not going to be able to just tout having the first electric pickup as some big selling point because at some point, electric trucks are going to be ubiquitous. So here's founder and CEO RJ Scaringe on this point yesterday. Is in the opposite future, everything will be electric. Uh, so uh, being electric alone isn't a sufficient differentiation point. It, it really ties into the ultimately what's the way the product comes together, the, the interplay between software, uh, the electronics on uh, the vehicle, of course, the dynamic performance of the vehicle, the packaging and, and the architecture of the vehicle uh, and how manufacturable the vehicle which ultimately drive the cost structure for, for what we're building. Okay, so Ryan, you said that Rivian appears to be playing a long game here and that they're learning as they go. What, what are they learning exactly? What are some examples? 
So, I mean, much of the call yesterday was was Rivian talking about what they're learning, how they're learning to make vehicles at a lower cost. So, I mean, one example would be the the Enduro motor and LFP battery pack, which sounds like a lot of lingo and jargon, but basically Rivian was buying motors and putting them in the vehicles. Now they're making them in-house, the Enduro motor, they call it, uh, also a different battery pack, the LFP. These are cheaper and they require fewer supply chain headaches, right? So cheaper, easier to get. Um, and those two things, the Enduro and the LFP battery packs, they're already going into the delivery vans that uh, Rivian is making for Amazon. They're going to start putting them inside of the consumer, you know, the R1S and the R1T. Going to start putting them in those vehicles soon as well. Um, so what that leads to is you've got the ability to make vehicles at a slightly lower cost with fewer supply chain headache, headaches at the plant. You've got a second shift running now so you can make more vehicles. All of that leads to, to more profit on each vehicle. And that increases the you know long-term viability of a, of a company like Rivian. And that means more profitability for the company as a whole? Yes, exactly. So Rivian is is stated again that sometime in 2024, they expect to reach a, a positive gross pro profit. Still a long way to go there, though. Uh, just yesterday, Rivian said that it lost about $1.3 billion in the first quarter of, of 2023. That is billion with a B. Although that is 15% better than this time a year ago. Uh, operating expenses and capital expenditures were down. Rivian brought in about $661 million in revenue from the delivery of, of about 8,000 vehicles. Uh, and, you know, again, I always like to say it took 18 years for Tesla, which is like the EV pioneer, it took them 18 years to turn a profit. So, you know. Patience. Yeah. So one of the uh, times you were in here recently, Ryan, you were talking about the company wanting to start this second plant down in Georgia. They were running into some problems with the neighbors objecting to that. Where do the things stand right now? Exactly. Yeah. So Rivian is looking to build the second plant, a very big plant, $5 billion that would employ 7,500 workers uh, down in Georgia, just east of Atlanta. Um, they're going to be building the R2 models there, which are different from the R1s being made here in normal. They're going to be cheaper, like forty to $50,000. Um, in that, you know, the R2 is, you know, how they're going to apply all the stuff they've learned here in normal to the next generation of vehicles, the R2. Uh, and as you alluded to, they've had a bit of a bumpy road uh, down in Georgia. There was some opposition from neighbors who were concerned about how a big plant like this could sort of disrupt the rural area uh, that the plant will be going into. Uh, but just two weeks ago, um, the state of Georgia and vicariously Rivian won a pretty important favorable ruling on the incentives that the government was going to be giving to Rivian to get this deal done. Uh, Rivian's chief financial officer, Claire McDonough, sounded pretty optimistic about all this on yesterday's call. On four of the five aspects of the appeal uh, that the court ruled in, in favor of, of Georgia, uh, and therefore, you know, Rivian uh, benefits as, as part of uh, that ruling overall. So, a uh, great moment, momentum as we sit here today on you know, progress in Georgia. And Rivian is hoping to have R2 production underway in Georgia uh, by 2026, which is a little later than they initially thought. So, on the call yesterday, were there any other maybe highlights that kind of stuck out to you? 
Well, one thing I, I'm trying to pay a little more attention to is, you know, all this kind of macro existential EV industry stuff, it can like overshadow the the smaller successes that, that Rivian is also trying to tout, right? So a, a couple of examples of that would be last week, Rivian's uh, R1S, so the SUV, earned this top safety pick award from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, so like the, the group that does like crash tests. Uh, and it's the only large SUV to earn that award in the country. Um, the R1T truck back in February um, also earned that. It's the only electric truck to have that recognition. A couple of months ago, the R1T earned J.D. Power's top satisfaction rating uh, among premium EVs. The previous uh, holder of that was the Tesla Model 3. Um, so those are things that Rivian wants to tout, right? So Nick Kalasian, who is a Rivian's chief product development officer, says these types of things kind of add up, and they're all important as for Rivian as the EV space gets a lot more competitive. We have a, a software uh, experience and overall customer experience that, that we're really proud of and we think differentiates beyond just being an electric vehicle. So the nutshell version is Rivian feels like they have a good product, they want to make more of them, and find ways to spend less money to do so in each. Well, let's come back to Normal now at the plant out in West Normal. What's the latest out there? Well, they had just uh, shut down the the line that makes the commercial delivery vans, like the ones going to Amazon. They just shut that down uh, for a little bit to put in some of the new stuff we were talking about, like the, the Enduro motor, for example. Uh, the plant now has 7,500 employees, full-time employees in Normal, and which is just kind of uh, astounding when you think about four years ago at this time, in, right. in May, May of four years ago, there were 60 people working at the plant, and now it's 7,500. Uh, they're planning a, a big parking lot addition uh, project on the south side of the plant, kind of tied into the College Avenue reconstruction that would be happening near there. So lots happening at the, at the plant. Wow. Great report, Ryan. WGLT Digital Content Director Ryan Denham. He has been covering Rivian for us for a number of years right now. Ryan, thanks for joining us in studio on Sound Ideas. Thanks, John. You can read Ryan's full report on this week's Rivian earnings call right now at WGLT.org. The COVID health emergency expires tomorrow. And on tomorrow's Sound Ideas, you'll hear how that might impact access to free testing and vaccines and other measures put in place to slow the spread of COVID-19. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. I'm John Norton. Whenever you move to a new community, it can be difficult to know how to recycle. Who takes it? What do they actually take? And where does it go? Michael Brown is executive director of the Ecology Action Center in Normal. In this installment of WGLT's series, Welcome Home, Brown tells WGLT's Eric Stock how the nonprofit helped build a recycling program here in Bloomington Normal. We're really unique. I actually haven't found any similar organization anywhere else I've been. Um, definitely not in the state of Illinois, uh, but we are the nonprofit environmental agency for Bloomington Normal and McLean County. And so we, you know, briefly provide a wide variety of, of services, of information, of education and outreach on a variety of environmental issues. Such as? 
such as solid waste and, and recycling. And this is like our, our core issue. We've been working on solid waste and recycling uh, since our founding in 1971. And so back in the day, we actually provided the direct services of recycling, but uh, that was long ago taken over by the municipalities. And so today we are the center for information on that. So we can help new residents get set up with curbside recycling. We can help them learn what is and isn't recyclable in our community. Um, if they do not have curbside recycling at their, their new location, uh, we can show them where the drop-off recycling services are um, and a whole host of other solid waste uh solid waste management related services. So going back to its beginning, 1971, uh, solid waste was Ecology Action Center's main mission. How did that come about before the municipalities ended up uh, taking that over? People might be curious since it is such a unique operation. And so a lot of it comes about from the early environmental movement of the late 1960s, early 70s. Um, Earth Day 1970 was kind of a, a unique moment for for launching a lot of different initiatives here locally and across the nation and even the world. And so uh, it was probably about that time that, yeah, a group full of dedicated people saw the need for recycling services where there were none in our community, uh, wanted to demonstrate the interest and the feasibility of a recycling program. So they put on this one-day, one-time recycling drive. Um, it was so wildly successful that unfortunately for them, but fortunately for the rest of us, um, they had to keep going. And so it became a regular volunteer-based recycling service called Operation Recycle um, and actually grew uh, to be a nonprofit organization um, on its own, providing recycling services into the 90s. Um, and it's at that point that the municipalities took over that direct service and Operation Recycle, having already been getting into education and outreach in order to increase participation in recycling, turned to become the Ecology Action Center, which had been its, its kind of new education arm. So one of the most common questions you hear from the public about what the Ecology Action Center does, and I suspect they're not just uh, people who are new to the community. Sure. I think a lot of people especially those who don't live in our community, but who are aware of us, the most common question I get is, how do we get an ecology action center in my community? Um, since we are so unique, because it's not just the recycling programs, it's household has this waste coordination, it's community composting, which is a, a drop-off composting service. Uh, we teach people how to do backyard composting, provide composting workshops. Uh, we have a online uh, app for your, your smartphone or in your browser that tells you everything you want to know about recycling, um, including geographic address-specific listings uh, for everything you might want to recycle or have to dispose of. And so a whole host of waste-related services in addition to other programs as well. And this is Sound Ideas. I'm Eric Stock with Michael Brown, Executive Director of Ecology Action Center in Normal. Recycling is much more prolific now than it was at the start of Ecology Action Center, but how much of an impact has the center had, do you feel, in improving participation in recycling? So we do track, among other things, the annual waste generation rate for our community, as well as the annual recycling rate. And these aren't so much the participation numbers, but these are the raw numbers. How much waste did we create as a community through all sectors? And then how much of that, what percentage was actually recycled? And so we track that annually and have for a few decades now. And so we do have good data showing a consistent trend upward in the amount recycled. What about things like uh, batteries, uh, scrap metal, those types of things that uh, people inquire about? Or 
What do people ask most frequently about when they're not sure whether it can or can't be recycled? I, I think those are good examples. Batteries for sure. I think paints always tend to be problematic, especially since there's different kinds of paints. You get your spray paint, which is an aerosol can, which that by by nature, given that compressed air is a hazardous item. Um, you have oil-based paints, which are hazardous, um, but then you have latex paints, which are not hazardous and actually can easily be disposed of by a resident simply by drying it out and then putting in the trash. And so there is just a lot of variation in consumer products. Um, I, I think the, the next, you know, most common thing is just massive confusion over plastics recycling and the various codes on plastics, which, which we actually nowadays, and actually a lot of our partners across the state do the same thing. We tell people to ignore the numbers. The, the numbers have always been misleading. They've never been universal, never been definitive. And so we tell people instead, uh, to look at the shape of the plastic container. Is it a bottle, tub, jug, or jar? bottle, tub, jug, or jar. If it's not, it's not recyclable. How much do you feel people's confusion about what can and can't be recycled as hurting your overall output? Because people simply don't know, and you do hear the phrase, when in doubt, throw it out. Correct. Correct. That is, that is our mantra now, especially with the transition away from uh, educating about plastic codes and numbers and more in these shapes. Um, we really want to simplify it. It is, it is kind of a radical change in the messaging, which frustrates people sometimes. But, but really, the, the mantra is when and out, throw it out because contamination has become such a tremendous uh, issue with recycling. The amount of labor, time, cost it takes to sort out things that are not recyclable um, greatly hurts recycling, uh, hurts the, the value of recycling. Essentially, if you think of the what should be a built-in kind of subsidy to recycling services, that, that should be the value of the product itself once it's been sorted and bailed and sold. Um, the more we have to process the material to get it there means there's less of that subsidy left, if anything at all. What other misconceptions are out there about environmental sustainability in Bloomington Normal? A, a big one to get back to waste is uh, when we look at organics. So there is a massive misconception that putting organics into landfill is a harmless activity. Um, people tell me on a regular basis, well, I can just throw them in the trash because that will break down and go away and not cause a problem, as if that's just going to turn right back into soil because you put it into the landfill. Well, in reality, landfills are designed to prevent decomposition. Landfills are designed to be a stable environment. Landfills are actually compacted to push out all the oxygen. Oxygen is a key variable that we need for the proper aerobic decomposition of organic waste. In the absence of that, either things don't break down or they break down through an anaerobic uh, process, which means without oxygen, which is with other microbes that then as a waste product generate methane. Methane is 20 times more impactful as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So throwing organic waste into the landfill is actually a, a pretty serious contributor to climate change. And so we want to get the word out that people should be composting. Um, they should be recycling anything that's that's natural or organic where they can. That was Michael Brown from the Ecology Action Center in Normal with WGLT's Eric Stock. Brown says recycling companies determine what can be economically viable to recycle, and that's why recyclable materials may vary from one community to the next. 
And there's more recycling information available at RecycleBN.org and the Recycle Coach app. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. Thanks for listening today. I'm John Norton. A 150-year-old art mystery has finally been solved at the Bloomington Public Library. WGLT student reporter Megan Spurline has the story. The library held auctions for nearly 40 of its art pieces earlier this year. Many wall hangings and paintings needed to be removed because of the library's expansion project. Many of the pieces being sold were donations that were in secluded locations in the library. That gave little opportunity for public viewing, according to library staff. Some of the stories about how the library obtained these pieces of artwork have become lost over the last 50 years. One piece in particular has an interesting past and was considered to be long gone by several art enthusiasts. A 19th century William B. T. Trago painting, The Charge of Custer at Winchester, seemed to vanish after being purchased by an American diplomat, John C. White, back in 1884. Surprisingly, the painting had been hanging back in the Illinois section in the Bloomington Public Library as library marketing manager Rhonda Massey explains. I didn't know how big of a deal it was, you know. It, it, it's just kind of neat that it was sitting here all this time. Like I said, I walked past it for 15 years and didn't know, and there's people in Pennsylvania actually actively looking for it and can't find it. The painting boosted Trago's career overnight, making the military history painting essential to Trago's list of works. Library officials estimated the painting would sell between $3,000 and $5,000. Adding fees to the gavel price, the buyer paid about $14,500. The Trago painting made up over half of the earnings from the entire auction. The full story of how the library ended up with the painting is unclear. Massey says library records show it was donated to them by Adelaide Ewing. We don't know how the person who gave it to us got it from John C. White, and we haven't been able to pinpoint that. Adelaide Ewing was the uncle of a man named Spencer Ewing, who was on our board for a long time. The buyer of the painting wished to remain anonymous. They first found the painting while searching for auctions related to General Custer, a United States Army officer during the Civil War. At first I thought... It's probably fake. You know, I said, this is something, this, this is too weird. It can't be the painting. And I um, did some checking. I got in touch with, with Trigo's biographer, Joseph Eckhart, and um, he was, I told him, and he said, I think you found it. The buyer says they were a fan of Trigo partly because of his dedication to his craft, overcoming a pretty big shortfall. He could not use his hands. It was amazing how he painted. He basically had to, he used to stick the brush inside his hand. It was with a, a clenched hand and couldn't, it was inoperable. And he would move his right hand with his left hand, which was also um, very crippled. He was the force of nature. While the buyer is currently enjoying the 19th century painting on their wall, they want the art to be appreciated by other Traco fans as well. They would be willing to loan the art to a museum, but they have no plans to sell. I'm Megan Sperline. The auction was one of several fundraisers the Bloomington Public Library has hosted to fill its portion of the cost for a $25 million renovation. And that is Sound Ideas Today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT's Eric Stock, also Ryan Denham in studio, and WGLT student reporter Megan Spurline. The show produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.